If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot... Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Reveal. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. On today's episode, we're bringing you a fascinating conversation with a winner of this year's Dan David Prize, the prize of which History Extra is a media partner, recognises outstanding scholarship that illuminates the past and seeks to anchor public discourse in a deeper understanding of history. Today's guest is Dr Christina Richardson. Christina is Associate Professor of History at Queen's College and the Graduate Centre of City University of New York. Her research looks at how one itinerant medieval Middle Eastern community was highly advanced in printing on paper long before it was adopted in the West. Speaking to Christina was the author, broadcaster and public historian Helen Carr, who's working with us on this series. Professor Christina Richardson, I'm delighted to welcome you to the BBC History Extra podcast as one of the 2022 Dan David Prize winners. Your expertise is based around many things, um, but primarily the Mamluk and Ottoman history, uh, but also disability and literary history, which is what I'm going to mostly be focusing on for this podcast. Um, With amongst all of these different uh, areas and disciplines, could you introduce yourself and perhaps describe your research in a little more detail, but also adding what drew you to it? Sure. And and thank you, Helen, for having me on the podcast. Um, I guess I would describe myself. My, my, my research does range pretty far, I mean, temporally and also thematically. So from the 9th century to the 16th century in the central Islamic lands, so basically from Egypt 
well, Egypt, Iraq, and Syria, um, and the Arabian Peninsula for the most part. Um, thematically, I, I, I do focus on non-elites. I have to say that's a thread that has run maybe with one or two exceptions in, in all of my work. I really thrill to learning about um, the lives and experiences and, and influences of people who, who just did not hold a lot of power. Um, so I'm not interested in courts and kings and queens. I'm sorry, but, but so, so, that, so my work tends to go towards disabled people. Um, in the Middle East, blue-eyed people were um, a pretty you know, denigrated category. So I work on blue-eyed people, also the Roma and um, craft workers. So, so that's basically where my work has been. What inspired you to to, to work on that? I think I like to work in a field by myself. I, I actually feel like that's something, it, I find it very hard to react to, um, to, you know, to make interventions based on long series of, of research. So with the Roma, for instance, in the Middle Ages, there is, you know, nothing has been written since 1903, and that was written in French. That means not a lot of Americans are reading it anyway. And so, um, you know, it was really new in my field. Um, as for blue-eyed people, there had not been nothing before. So I, I think there's something about um, just being able to make a statement and then field reactions. Like that for me feels a lot easier than than intervening. Which does actually lead me into something that I think is fascinating. And it's a discovery or your key argument you're making in your most recent work, which is that an itinerant Middle Eastern community were highly advanced in printing on paper long before it was adopted in the West, uh, you know, later most famously pioneered by Johannes Gutenberg in, in the late 15th century. But so who were these people? And can you explain some of these early print processes? Absolutely. So I'm I'm looking at a group that actually is broader than the Roma. So in Arabic, the term is Ghuraba, which literally translates to foreigners or to strangers. So I'll refer to them as strangers uh, today. Um, and so this was a very capacious category. So it was, yes, the Roma, but also um, other traveling communities like the Nawar and the Halab, um, for those you know listeners who might know these groups, um, and the Dome and the Loam. So um, speakers of very many different kinds of languages, all unified by a shared lifestyle. So a rejection of majority values like property ownership or learning a craft that um, that would sustain a community like agriculture or you know uh, butchery um, and and so these people it appears that at least since the 10th century and I and this information is not only from their own sources but also from uh, contemporary Arabic sources um, and Persian sources that state that they were that they had monopolized effectively the 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 craft of, of block printing in, so from, again, from the 10th to the 15th centuries. Um, and so what they did, according to them, they carved pieces of wood, um, of course, in, in, you know, in mirror format, um, backwards text, and they would, they, they record their ink recipes um, that they used to, you know, paint the wood and then stamp paper. They also claim that they carved tin um, and they must have had a different ink recipe. I haven't found that. It must have had an oil base to it um, to stick to the metal, but also using that to print on paper. So the Chinese and uh, Buddhists, of course, for a couple of centuries before um, Middle Easterners had been, you know, um, had been printing on paper. So they were not the first, but they seem to have inherited um, this tradition from East Asians and, and especially especially Buddhist communities. So, so much of this appears to be down to their uh, communal shared interest in, in traveling and, and moving and um, changing spaces. If you're talking about the way that they adopted this printing process, how that then also enabled them to spread it further. I mean, what do we know about 
about their sort of travel roots and did these communities bring some of their cultures and practices to Europe at any point? So I should say my sources are biased towards um, the more sedentary groups of these strangers. Um, there are references to movement throughout the Middle East, um, but they, you know, when they settle, they tend to, they appear to tend to write and recite uh, their poetry and their and their theater and their plays. Um, so I could say that they're moving between settled communities. Um, they're basically very dependent, all of these traveling communities, dependent on settled peoples for their sustenance. So they don't make or produce their own food. Um, the shelter they, they seem to have is either uh, very precarious or either living in um, abandoned buildings, um, in, in, you know, in, in large groups and abandoned buildings in the city. So that seems to be the movement, I guess, Yeah, just from city to city, but sometimes settling in these cities outside of the city walls um, or, again, in abandoned communities within city walls. Um, As for breaking their culture into Europe, um, yeah, this is what uh, got me thinking in the first place about maybe how did their own cultures in the Middle East maybe impact their lives in Europe. So in the 1410s, this is our first mention of Romani peoples entering into Central Europe. So they certainly were in the Balkans and Southeastern Europe for centuries before that in Ottoman territories. But coming into Southern Germany in 1417, um, this is where we get to, we begin to understand a little bit more about, um, you know, about their lifestyles because the the records, I should say, from townspeople, from observers are a little clearer than they were, at least in in the Middle Ages in the Middle East. So what they brought, you know, as I argue, is that they probably brought block printing technology with them. So a very old technology for them, five centuries old at this point. Um, But they seem to have brought that along their route. What sort of literature were they printing? And would you say that there are various types of cultural and linguistic influences within it? Or would you say that it is more of a, uh, uh, more unique to their personal cultures? I mean, for example, do you get influences of um, other languages within it? Oh, sure. Um, Well, as for what they were printing, they seem to have mostly printed, well, exclusively religious texts, let's say that. Um, most of what I've been finding are excerpts from the Quran or prayers, not in the Quran, but, you know, very typical prayers that uh, an average Muslim would recognize. Um, they also, however, and so those are printed in Arabic. Um, they also print a little bit in Greek, a little bit in Coptic, a little bit in Hebrew, and also Syriac. And in those languages, they're printing Christian and, and Jewish religious texts. So in Hebrew, we have, you know, an excerpt from Psalms. In Greek, we also have another excerpt from Psalms. Also in Hebrew, a portion of Deuteronomy. Um, so so there seemed to have been um, yeah, a, a wide sense of literacy and an understanding of, of broad cultural or religious traditions. Um, I think, and this doesn't point to the fact you know, that they maybe subscribe to all of these faiths, uh, they seem to have been first and foremost, you know, printing these amulets to sell them. And so to, to, to sell to the widest possible population, you know, they could not just focus on one uh, faith tradition or linguistic tradition. Um, it was it was quite wide. And in addition to that, and I'm not sure the, the strangers were actually printing this next, we also have printed pilgrimage certificates um, for pilgrimages to Mecca. So I'm not entirely sure the, the strangers were doing that, but, um, but anyway, but that's another form of I guess, religious-related printing. But all of it was was faith-related. I have to say, I mean, even from East Asia, Central Asia, and West Asia, which I work on, all of these early texts were were entirely religious. So, Yeah, yeah I think that really applies for 
I would say 90% of medieval texts. I mean, unless you're looking at, you know, the odd, uh, the odd piece, especially when it, you know, much later on in, uh, late 14th century, when you start to see, um, kind of stories and fables and things printed like, well, not printed, but produced. Um, it certainly, most things were religious, weren't they? If you're thinking more traditionally in Europe about things like books of hours, et cetera, it would make sense that the amount that people were investing in that type of religious material, that then that, the, that these people were producing them and in order to sell them and make a, um, make a very successful trade, I assume. Exactly. Yes. Do you think that's how they emerged, the, the, uh, block printing emerged in Europe. Would you say that that it was through these sort of the buying and selling of these different texts that 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 happened? Without question, I have to fall a little bit into um, conjecture um, because I don't. But I do think that when they presented themselves in Southern Europe in fourteen to seventeen, I mean, certainly they did present themselves as former Muslims. They'd converted to Christianity um, because they kept flip flopping in their faith. Their bishop ordered them to. Um, wander for seven years. So they were wandering in penance. And so they received these um, safe conduct letters uh, that allowed them to circulate um, in Bavaria, basically unmolested, and and also having access to alms and to food and beer. And it seems pretty clear that that the earliest prints, at least in, in Southern Europe, were appearing in monasteries, and they were certainly preserved in monasteries. Um, and so I wonder if, as the, you know, they're claiming to be Christian penance or penitents, that they were maybe approaching these cloistered communities, maybe producing um, these printed works for them or showing them how to print. Um, and so I don't know if it was buying and selling. I don't know if it was gifting in exchange for for shelter. You know, I don't know. But I, it, it, there seems to be a very, at least for me, it felt very clear that um, there was this contact with, with cloistered people. And this is where the printing took place. And the earliest prints, um, I should say, in, in Southern Europe were of images of saints, right? So not yet printing words. Words come come pretty soon afterwards, but the earliest ones are just images. Um, so you just mentioned fourteen seventeen, and and I wanted to ask you about this because you know, why was this? And I, I think you you've just answered it in part. But why was it such a crucial time for block printing in Europe? And at what moment did this change everything? And I mean, did you think it it perhaps influenced that later move away from manuscript culture? Well, 1417 is just the first official record we have. So this is when a man named Duke Michael of Egypt, that's how he called himself, um, that he approached King Sigismund as he was attending the Council of, of, of Constance in the city of Constance on the lake. Um, and he apparently requested a safe conduct letter. And in the Imperial Register, it says, uh, you know, on a specific date in March of 1417, uh, that Duke Michael was granted this 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 safe conduct letter. So um, I do believe, you know, that they were probably circulating a little bit before that as well, um, maybe taking time to learn the local hierarchies and power structures before they approach the highest, <laughs> you know, political figure in the land um, for protection. Um, you know, these early block prints seem to be the earliest that we know of, I should say, um, in Europe. It's usually not integrated into the Gutenberg story. I actually found that very interesting as I was just looking into how Europeanists construct the history of print. And it always starts with Gutenberg in the mid-1450s you know, <laughs> with the, the Bible and, and his calendar and his Latin grammar book. And, and those works are fantastic and they're beautiful. And but but there's this long, you know, 
at least 30 years of printing before him that really is not integrated in into this. And I, I'm still not entirely sure why I have some ideas, but, um, but I do think it's important. I, I do say, I think in the book that, you know, as the Roma were migrating northward, they did pass through the city of Erfurt at the same time that Gutenberg was a student um, in the city at the university. Of, or he was presumed to have studied there. So uh, there was a possibility that, I don't know, but you know, that's again conjecture, but it's, it, it just tells me that these stories need to be told together, right? Gutenberg, as well as this wave of migration yeah. um, are related, I think. You talk about uh, Gutenberg using his sort of his Latin texts. How, how much of these um, early printed texts that you've been working on can be linked to Latin? Actually, I haven't found printed Latin, but I but the language I should say of these strangers. So they had a lingua franca. So each group, you know, had a like the Romani spoke Roma, of course. The Dom spoke Domari, etc. So they all had uh, local, maybe tribal languages we could call them. And their lingua franca was something called scene, and scene um, is uh, it, it's it's a little like Yiddish. So you know, Yiddish has this grammar that's German. And then the vocabulary is German, but also Hebrew and it has some Romani in it too. And so scene has an Arabic grammar base and it has vocabulary from Latin, from Arabic, from Persian. And then there's a wide strata, a stratum of vocabulary that I cannot identify. And I haven't met anyone, you know, that a collaborator cannot identify either. So it's probably, you know, an older language. We just don't know. Um, so they seem to have, so for instance, I think the word for donkey is zil, and, you know, it's related to the uh, German, you know, Ezel. They were certainly circulating in Roman communities and, you know, Eastern Mediterranean communities and picking up a little bit of Latin. But actually, to this date, I don't know of, of printed Latin, unfortunately. But they did print Greek, that's for sure. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. There is a statement in a 14th century work by a Syrian who claims to have traveled most of his life with the strangers, in which he says that he talks about their their salons, their literary salons. He says they're very hierarchical, um, and there's a clear hierarchy in the stranger community. You know, the literate peoples are at the top of this hierarchy. So the preachers, you know, the printers, and, and at the bottom of the hierarchy are those who collect the garbage in the street. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at indeed.com slash history extra. Just go to indeed.com slash history extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest, whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call 
Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. You talked about the Roma communities and how they moved through um, through move through Europe, how much of how much are we able to recover of their history because of because they are were so itinerant in this period? Um, actually, you, we can recover quite a lot about it. I'm actually quite surprised um, because, I mean, I there's not a very robust engagement with Romani history. I would say among uh, Europeanist uh, medievalists, but I mean, we can certainly trace their routes. We can trace Duke Michael's spe- specific band of Romani uh, people, maybe about 100 people in total, as they circulate from, you know, southern Germany up to the Baltic, up to the North Sea. But the fact is that because they're often recorded in local um, town chronicles, their arrival certainly uh, caused a stir. (laughs) They were, you know, they were loud. uh, They performed, you know, they did acrobatic performances in the fish markets and they did uh, fortune telling. I mean, they were, you know, they made an, they made an impression. So thankfully, that's good for historians because you know wherever they went, someone noticed it. So, um, so I think what we learn about them is, uh, you know, they they, I mean, some small things like you know they they dress differently. We know a lot about their dress that they pierced their ears, they pierced their children's ears, um, that they lived outdoors, they sold horses. They seem to be very expert on on horse trading. Um, and fortune telling and begging. So those three um, features of their culture, which you know is also apparent in the M- Middle Eastern sources, uh, were, were strong, you know, anchors of of their communities. Do you get much um, uh, information about them from the Middle Eastern sources? Some of the texts, for example. Oh yes, actually, I mean they're they're very rich. In in fact, because a lot of them are authored by these strangers. So that's that's the difference. I, I again, I don't, you know, I don't, I'm not predominantly Europeanist. So I don't work on those sources so much, but in, in Arabic and in scene, we have so many uh, medieval sources. So that's been really rich for me. Um, there are a number of didactic poems uh, written by these strangers in which they try to explain their scene language to, to Arabs. So it's in Arabic, it's interspersed with scene, and then it's glossed in Arabic to explain these scene terms. There are also uh, performative plays. I mean, there's a 14th century or 13th century play um, by Ibn Daniel. It was created in Cairo, um, in which he, you know, it's it's basically a parade of of figures from the strangers' community. So, you know, the fortune tellers, the astrologers, the lion tamers, the elephant tamers, the cat trainers, you know, all of these kind of circus figures and and uh, charlatans and printers. So for the most part, they've been understood as as tricksters and clowns in my fields literature. Um, and so that's helped us to overlook the fact that they were propagating, you know, a technology that a lot of us today would say was crucial, right, for uh, the spread of literacy and, and things like that. But um, so there was actually a lot about them, I should say, in Arabic. Yeah. And how do you think these people are presented as part of a wider understanding of uh, the medieval world? I mean, you know, particularly within our sort of broader understanding of medieval global history. 
Well, I, for me, I mean, just working on this project, I had to reorient myself to my own subject so many times. The book was years late, uh, and partly for that reason. I mean, everything I thought I knew, and this is no exaggeration, I had to revisit. I had to revisit biases around what constituted a language, um, because their scene, Lingua Franca, was... Uh, first, we didn't know that the language was called scene. That was something I, I found out, but um, was was described as a beggar's can't or a thieves can't usually it wasn't treated like with any sort of dignity um i also had to reimagine um what a romany person was i had to you know deconstruct the fact that you know this is a very modern construction and and no one identified by these very specific linguistic categories in the period i'm looking at um even as you hear when they come to europe they they call themselves egyptians right so they have a very different self identification um but what it tells us about the middle ages and again this is an entire group of people that had been overlooked as a serious group in in my field um was that you know the modern present does not map easily onto the past. And I think, you know, we tend to do that as historians. In my field, we focus on, you know, uh, the sectarian differences, really, you know, Jewish, Christian, Muslims in the past. And that's, that, that's it, you know? I mean, we do a little bit, we, we really haven't interrogated African enslavement um, in any serious way, uh, the Roma, et cetera. So I think it's broadened um, our conception of what was possible. And also, we have to imagine who brought so-called civilization to whom, right? I mean, this these were roaming hordes, you know, in the Middle East and in Europe. Um, and we tend to associate nomadic peoples not with civilization. Um, you know, civilization is sedentary. And so I think a lot of these categories just have to be reimagined. And also um, the story of European early modernity too might have to be reimagined. It is a story that's told uh, predominantly from, you know, the printing press onward. And I think the story could be backdated, right, to 1417 and then early printing, then the printing press. So I think we have to reimagine a lot of the past. Yeah, I mean, I mean, in the last 20 minutes or so, you've mentioned languages and cultures that I think so many people wouldn't have even know existed. Surely that, in the process, in the course of your research, was that a problem for you, sort of trying to recover some of these languages and trying to work out what they were, who they belonged to. And even you mentioned that you didn't even know that um, scene was uh, was the name of a language. How did you move through these problems in your research? Because they are <laughs> they are quite significant to the point where I think many historians would have somewhat given up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's it was a challenge. Maybe it was late. The book was late because I, I partly did give up. I mean, to say the different cultures that I, it was, it was an education. I have to say, I think what I really like about being a professor is that, you know, you're humbled all the time, you know, sometimes in the classroom, a lot of times just in, you know, in archives, you know, you can't read something on your own or, you know, trying to analyze a text. So this was an incredibly humbling experience. I I would hope that if this book is, is read and taught, um, that it, that it, that it encourages us to just not feel so settled in our assumptions about knowledge, right? I mean, that we really don't know a lot. And that's what really, you know, I I do think I have a strong handle on the canon, you know, the medieval canon of of my field. Um, And this just overturned just about everything I'd assumed. I mean, um, just directions of influence, um, who was literate in the period. You know, we, we really 
focus on people who wrote books. And I think that focus on book production comes out of our own, you know, we both, I see ourselves, we both have books in our, in our, in our households. I mean, you know, we make books, we write books and we write books. Um, so, you know, we, we also want to look into the past and kind of valorize our present by seeing who was doing that and where did that start. But, you know, it's, it's also printing, you know, it's ephemera, it's, it's, it's pamphlets, it's, it's smaller material too, that pushes history forward. And I think, you know, the reorientation to history is, would be my, my key takeaway. Yeah. Can I ask, you know, what your, when faced with some of these texts, because thinking about a historian's process and especially a historian who is dealing with some of these very early texts in, in, uh, I would say almost, um, it's like I would look at it and feel like it was code that you were trying to transcribe. How would you look to other languages? So, for example, you've mentioned some things were in Greek. Were there influences in some of the, uh, I suppose, some of the um, minority languages like seen that were taking influences from some of the more understood languages like Arabic or Greek or Hebrew that you were able to use to be able to apply to some of the more complex ones? The morphology of scene verbs um, follows the morphology of Persian verbs. So that was helpful to know um, Persian. Um, so I, I don't have all of the languages of that, you know, that influenced scene. I wish I did. Um, and of course, the Arabic grammar, I do have, have the Arabic. So that was, that helped me get through it, um, you know, you know to, to decode it, I should say. Um, but otherwise, you know, I, I will have to say I'm, sure that there are others with, with different specialties. I mean, what, one of my regrets going through this project is that I don't have any uh, Southern European, like uh, Balkan languages, um, Southeastern European languages, and that would probably have helped a lot. Um, and so, I, you know, of course, this is a prolegomena to further research. I can't, I did not write, you know, the last uh, text on the Roma, medieval Roma or medieval scene. And, and I do hope it's taken up and expanded. It is so interesting a group of people, these strangers, because they come from basically everywhere in Asia and in Southeastern Europe and North Africa, um, that I don't think one person could get through it. So I do look forward to collaborations in the future or future work. Yeah. Do you think that the medieval Roma communities have been marginalized to the point where we were in danger of losing some of their histories? I think actually that preservation of their works has been remarkably is remarkably robust. I think the real issue has been, um, you know, whom do we take seriously in the past, right? I mean, do you, would it have to be someone who had a formal education through a Quranic school and studied under a known teacher, or is it someone who, you know, preached on the sidewalks, not sidewalks, you know, in the alleys and on the streets of the past? Um, so I think. I think it's there. I think there's a lot more than I was able to find. I mean, in my book, I did, there was one chapter on a poet from Mamluk Cairo, who I believe was a stranger, um, and who he said so in his poetry. And he also included scene, you know, blocks of scene in his poetry and lived in the neighborhood where the strangers lived. No one else lived there. So, you know, that was also the, that was the giveaway. Like, okay, this was the neighborhood no one else went to. Um, so I think there's more there. I think there's a literate culture oral manuscript and print culture um, that really needs to be excavated. And it's not impossible. It, it just, you know, there has to be a will, but it's it's there. It's interesting you talk about the oral um, histories with that, because we talk, you know, we mentioned earlier that so much of the, the recorded text is is religious, whereas actually some of the oral histories were, were likely to be more stories and uh, things with sort of a, 
I suppose, a narrative of of times and uh, mythologies, etc. Would you say that there is an ability to look into that further? Or do you think that that's a history that is probably lost to us now? As for the oral culture, I mean, there is a statement in a 14th century work by a Syrian who claims to have traveled most of his life with the strangers, in which he says that he talks about their their salons, their literary salons. He says they're very hierarchical. Um, and there's a clear hierarchy in the stranger community. You know, the literate peoples are at the top of this hierarchy. So the preachers, um, you know, the printers. And, and at the bottom of the hierarchy are those who collect the garbage in the street. Um, again, urban streets. But yeah, so there's a hierarchy. And so, you know, they, they speak in that order. And he says that they produce poetry and scene. Um, I do hope one day, you know, when when every time I read about a manuscript that has an in, indecipherable text or a language, you know, I'm always thinking, you know, within Arabic script, for instance, I'll think, okay, is that scene? And, and you know, I'll go to it and check. I, I wonder if someone transcribed something in scene, because we have lots of transcriptions of scene <laughs> that have usually been described in the sources as indecipherable Arabic or faulty Arabic or, you know, a scribe who didn't know anything, you know. Um, so I think it's there. We have to just, so at the back of the book, I have a glossary so we can, you know, we can start to teach students um, how to recognize uh, this other language. It's like, it's there and, and it influenced so much. So we should really get into it, that. It's wonderful <laughs> to be at the grassroots of this of this research in a way, isn't it? Because then you can actually kind of, you know, you're paving the way for, for other historians to go forward and, and find all of these secret texts. Where do you see your research being placed within a global history context? And, you know, what is it that you're hoping to achieve by recovering these minority literary communities? Wow. Well, I think first and foremost, I'd, you know, I, I think, you know, we need a global counterpart. And these are, these are the words of Kenneth Pomerantz, but the, a global p- counterpart to Elizabeth Eisenstein's history of early print. And I think uh, this is something I would like to work on, like with, you know, a dream team of medievalists, you know, from, you know, from the Korean peninsula to, I guess, yeah, Iberia, um, in which we really try to reconstruct and not, I mean, Gutenberg would be proud of this question, obviously, but I mean, but to also situate him in a broader context and, and to see, you know, how the Buddhists brought this to the Middle Easterners, how they brought it. Um, I think that would be important. And I think that's a key question for also how the public sphere begins in Europe. Was there public sphere in the Middle East, maybe around these printed texts? I think there's so many questions. Was movable type used in Arabic? We, I was not able to answer that myself. Uh, Maybe the answer is no, but I also think, you know, we really haven't asked that question. Um, So I'd like to do that. I also think um, it would be interesting to have a real study of these travelers. I mean, to, to really have a a subfield in the, in the medieval studies, uh, in medieval studies of, of just traveling peoples, um, and not in a way that you know that infantilizes them or treats them as clowns or beggars who have nothing to offer, but you know really understand why why people chose to beg. You know what were the freedoms that actually come from uh, people who don't have to borrow money or who don't have to pay taxes on said earnings, and and also um, astrology as a faith. So I I do lightly argue that the strangers were not. I mean, they might have said they were Muslim or, or Jewish or Christian, but that they're, but that a core faith that she, was was really astrology, right? So belief in the planets and the stars as, um, as important factors and as also deified. So I think treating you know astrology as a serious faith tradition in the Middle Ages would also be a, a new 
a good direction which we could follow. Thank you so much, Christina, and congratulations again on your very well-deserved prize. Thank you so much, Helen. Thank you for the conversation. It was really, really a lot of fun. Thanks for listening. That was Dr. Christina Richardson. She's Associate Professor of History at Queen's College and the Graduate Centre of the City University of New York. Christina was speaking to the author, broadcaster and public historian Helen Carr. Christina is one of the winners of this year's Dan David Prize, the world's largest history prize, which recognises outstanding historical scholarship. If you'd like to hear more conversations between Helen and other winners of the Dan David Prize, you can access the whole collection early and ad-free now at historyextra.com slash dan david prize. And you can find out more about the Dan David Prize, including their events and the other winners, at dandavidprize.org. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.